All right, well, if you would, you can take your Bibles and go ahead and make your way over with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 6th chapter. That's Matthew uh, chapter 6, and we'll pick up in verse 19 this morning. Uh, if you were here last week, I assume maybe you can recall at least the big idea. The big idea was there are lots and lots of ways that you can maybe even strive to look religious but end up living for the approval of man. And we heard Jesus say things last week like if we consistently live, we aim our lives at the approval of man, we will not be inheritance of the kingdom of God. Like the kingdom of God is made up of these people, these disciples or these Christ followers or these Christians who are a people who aim to live their lives unto God not unto the world, not unto the approval of man. And so we saw this long list of ways that we can try to do that, even with a religious garb on it last week, living for the approval of man. Well, this week, we're going to learn that there's a whole new set of distractions, maybe, that would tempt us to live our lives for the world and not live our lives unto God. Very reasonable. Very reasonable that not just this kind of religious garbed approach to live for the approval of man would be a temptation for us, but there's actually a very worldly approach to live for the approval of man that could distract us and tempt us and lure us away from living unto God. Uh, We're going to see this morning very clearly that it actually matters who owns us. You're going to have to make a decision this morning. You're going to have to make a decision, a big decision, a real decision, like a life-defining decision. You have to make the decision. If you think you're going to remain neutral, you've already made your decision. There's a decision to be made, and it's a decision to be made about who owns us, who has the rights to us. It turns out it really matters who owns us. I learned, uh, I saw this unfold before me last week. Some of you saw it well. You probably could tell the story better than I can. But last week, I watched a young man learn this uh, lesson the hard way. We went to the Italian garden after we had eaten, uh, after we had time here, we went out to eat with Central Baptist of Gaffney. And while we were eating, uh, Pastor Joel and Kara's son, James, he apparently decided at some point in the course of the meal that he wanted to pick at the paint on the wall. Well, the challenge was, towards the end of our time together eating, Kara realized what had went on, and she told Joel what was going on. And I was standing outside, and here comes Joel and James. And Joel sits James down and has a very thorough conversation with James about the impropriety of picking paint off of other people's walls. And that really was kind of the main point of his rebuke to his son was, Son, that's not your wall. If the owners of Italian Gardens... It really is funny, isn't it? Like, it wouldn't matter. We wouldn't bat an eye if the owners of Italian Garden went in with paint scrapers and cleaned the whole thing off. Nobody would say anything's wrong with that. But all of a sudden, we get a little boy who picks a few pieces of paint off the wall over the course of dinner, and it turns out he gets disciplined for that. I trust that you understand that too. I I assume that you assume that Joel and Kira uh, did the right thing there. But it, it turns out, like, it really does matter who owns something. Very, very important. The question this morning is going to be who owns you. Let's read our text this morning. Lord willing, we're going to make it all the way through uh, the end of chapter 6, but we're just going to start in verses 19 through 24. So read that uh, with me and we'll dig in. Uh, Jesus speaking says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Pray with me. 
Oh Lord, uh, we come, a people who are bound by your word, a people who need your word if we will have life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us life according to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, hop back with me to verses 19 and 20, and I think you'll see pretty clearly the decision we have to make. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So there is a decision to be made. That didn't take very long to see. Jesus is saying very clearly, you have an option this morning. You can either choose to lay up treasures for yourself on earth, or you can choose to lay up for, your, for yourself treasures in heaven. Those are your options. You have a decision to make on that. Now, as you start to think through this, what decision do you make or what decision have you made, you probably want to ask the question like, how do I do that? How do I do either one of those things? Jesus, how would I go about laying up treasures for myself here on the earth? It's pretty simple, right? Pretty self-explanatory. Something that you'll be very, very familiar with. This morning when we're talking about treasures in heaven and treasures on earth and laying them up there, it's essentially about stuff. So I assume that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt like what it looks like to live for stuff or what it looks like to pursue stuff. You're probably going to want to go out and get a high-paying job so you can make a lot of money. Or maybe you need to go to school so you can get a job so you can make a lot of money or something like that. Maybe you're going to try to climb the ladder where you're at to take somebody else's job so you can make more money. Maybe that's a way to pursue that. Uh, Maybe you want to take a risky job. That's an option. That that doesn't involve school or anything like that. Like There are some jobs that are so risky. Like I heard the other week I was in a conversation with somebody, and they were telling me about a job that you could make six figures doing, and all you had to do was like go in and change some light bulbs, and you just had to change like a few light bulbs per year, actually. But there was this like um, just slight chance of like radioactive activity in this place where you're going to be changing light bulbs. So you can make lots and lots of money just by changing a few light bulbs. I don't know how long you're going to be around to spend it, but there's options for you to go out there and do stuff like that. Or you could, if you want to live for stuff, like maybe you could do one better than that. You could probably like, Make a YouTube channel, or you could make a TikTok or something like that. And if you figure out the algorithm, you could be filthy rich in a matter of no time for literally no reason at all. Like, you could do that. If you want to live for stuff, that's maybe some of the ways that you could go about that. You just get money, and you just try to acquire stuff. I'm not saying that you necessarily have to be successful at that or that it's going to work out for you. I'm saying that if you want to try to store up treasures for yourself on earth, that's pretty much going to be the path you have to pursue. What about if you want to store up treasures in heaven? Very simple. You just live unto God. So if, lay, if storing up treasures on earth looks like I kind of live unto the world and I try to play that game and I try to do the like whole American dream deal where I'm really focused on getting stuff and make myself healthy, wealthy, and comfortable, like if that's what I'm living unto to, to store up treasures on the earth, storing up treasures in heaven is the exact opposite. I live unto God. Actually, God determines my orientation. I'm pursuing him. I want him. That's what it looks like to lay up treasures in heaven. I'd be in a Christian. That's all it is. Not a particular type of Christian, not an extra credit Christian. Those aren't real things. It's not, that's not a category. It just looks like being a faithful biblical Christian where I would strive to live my whole entire life unto the Lord. Last week, again, you can make this connection really clearly, you saw Jesus tell these Pharisees who were living for the approval of man, like whatever, whatever you just got, whatever reward you just got for putting on that show, the pats on the back or the good jobs or the attaboys and stuff like that, like, That's all the reward that you have because the Lord's not going to reward you for living unto man. And if living unto man characterizes your life, you're not going to be in heaven anyway. So that's all the reward that you've got. But if you actually will live your life unto God, he'll reward you. 
you'll have treasure in heaven. That's how you go about laying up treasure in heaven. So I assume you know the how-tos. You can live unto the world or you can live unto God. And if you live unto the world, you're store up for yourself treasure here right now and with earthly things like stuff. And if you live unto God, you'll store up for yourself treasures in heaven. But Jesus wants you to know. He does want you to be aware. He's going to do a little risk analysis for you. As you make that decision, the big decision you're going to have to make, there's some things that you could, should consider. And so Jesus, who's a big advocate for you living unto God, says you just might want to be aware. Okay, if you store up treasures on earth, you got to deal with things like moths and rust, destroying things and thieves breaking in and stealing things. So just be aware of that. Like, I assume you know that. If you've ever had any stuff ever, like, I assume you know that stuff will eventually fail you. It doesn't really matter how good it is. It doesn't really matter how much money you put into it. It doesn't really matter how good a care you take of it. Like, that's the challenge with stuff. Stuff eventually breaks. Stuff eventually corrodes. Or somebody eventually steals your stuff, right? So stuff is kind of finicky like that. That's how it works. You could live under stuff, and if you live under stuff, you could, you could say, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to buy for myself and my family the nicest modular basketball goal in the history of mankind. It could have, like, one of those easy adjustable height features. It could have a really durable backboard. It could have, like, a, a breakaway rim in it with, like, a spring and all that stuff. But if you do that, like, if you live under that type of stuff, here's what could happen. Somebody could just, like, whip up in your yard and get out of their truck and say things like, I bet I can dunk on that basketball goal. And other people could stand there and say things like, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. And then next thing you know, like said person has dunked on the basketball goal and they absolutely have hammered it. And in hammering the basketball goal and they're celebrating their accomplishment, they don't even realize they pulled the whole thing down to the ground and it's broke. There's no more basketball goal now. There's really people out there like that. It's sad, but it's true. That could happen to you if you live unto stuff. There's dangers in living on this stuff. It breaks, it corrodes, it goes bad. People break it, people steal it. Like there's, there, are, there are risks associated with living for stuff. And Jesus says there's not risk associated with living for the Lord. Because if we live unto God and we store up treasure in heaven, guess what we don't have to worry about in heaven? We don't have to worry about things corroding and breaking or getting stolen. So just be aware of that. As you make this decision, am I gonna lay up my treasures on earth? Am I gonna lay up my treasures in heaven? Like, you've gotta factor that cost analysis in there. If I lay up treasures here, I gotta worry about this stuff. If I lay up treasures in heaven, I don't have to worry about that type of stuff. Jesus wants you to be aware because it's a big decision. Jesus knows it's a big decision. He wants you to have all the information. And so as he's given you all the information, he now wants you to know, look, this is an important decision because it's not a detachable decision. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not a detachable decision. So you make detachable decisions all the time. Like you'll make one when you leave here today. What you eat for lunch is of very little consequence. Like, I mean, don't, hear, don't, don't mishear me. I love lunch. I love food. I love food and restaurants and talking about meals and stuff as much as the next guy or gal, probably way more. Okay, so food's a big deal. But in the grand scheme of things, you eat where you want to, you eat what you want to for lunch. It will be of very little consequence four or five o'clock this afternoon. Won't matter very much. Like what you eat for lunch will have very little bearing on your life. It will do nothing to kind of reorient your affections or to reorient what you're living for or to reorient what you're pursuing. It's a detachable decision. You can disconnect it from you. Jesus says, though, not so with this decision. When it comes to whether I'm going to lay up for myself treasures on earth or whether I'm going to lay up treasures in heaven, I can't detach myself from it. So if I'm going to put my, my stock 
on the things that are on this earth, guess what that's going to do? My affections are going to go there. My ultimate loyalty is going to start going there. The center of my desires is going there. What guides me and drives me and controls me is slowly but surely shifting there. I can't make that decision. I cannot make the decision to live for the world without being attached to that decision. Same thing is true with the kingdom of God. So if I'm going to actually strive to live unto God, I want to leverage my whole life for the glory of God, Jesus says the very same thing's true. If you would live unto God, you cannot detach yourself from that. Your affections will gravitate towards that. Your ultimate loyalties will be with God. God will be, the glory of God in the pursuit of him will be what guides you and controls you and orients the way that you live your lives. You cannot detach yourself from this decision that you're making. It's a really big, really important decision and you cannot remove yourself from it. It's a big decision. It's an important decision. It's going to determine a lot of things about you. Because this trajectory-setting decision that you're making that's involving your heart and your affections and your desires, like, it's going to determine your destination. Which is Jesus' next point. He gives you an illustration of what he's talking about. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eyes, lamp body. What in the world is going on? You're sitting here thinking, like, I don't know what we're talking about, eyes and lamps and stuff like that. Like, I don't use lamps to make trajectory-setting, destination-defining decisions. Like, what, what's going on? Okay, well, let's just take a step back to a few weeks ago. We were talking about this whole lamp thing and what lamps would have been used for at this point in time. So we're in the first century thinking about lamps. Well, in the first century, if I was walking, say I need to walk around somewhere, and I need help seeing where I'm going, Guess what my options are? Get a lamp. <laughs> That's all you got. So a lamp actually is involved in this whole trajectory-setting deal. Like if I'm going to shed light and I'm going to look at what I'm doing and try to cast a direction for myself with my eyes, I might need the help of a lamp. And what Jesus is saying here when he's talking about the eye being the lamp of the body, if I'm going to look at what I'm doing to help me make decisions, I better have a healthy eye. I better make a good decision. Because the trajectory that I set for myself with this decision, is going to determine my destination. If I choose to live for the world, to live for the things of the earth, to try to store up treasure right here, right now, if that's the decision that I make, it has determined my destination. Because Jesus says, if we make healthy decisions, we'll be full of light, but if our eyes bad, our whole body will be full of darkness. By which he means judgment. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Like, judgment. Don't have a healthy eye and you pick the wrong course here if you choose to live unto the world. Like, just be aware, when you make that initial trajectory-setting decision, your destination's sealed. Like, I'm headed towards judgment at warp speed. But if your eye's healthy and you see well and the light that is in you is actually light and you make a healthy decision and say, this trajectory looks better, the same thing's also true. If I would live unto God and say, you know what I want to do with my life? Live for the Lord. Well, your destination's also sealed. You're headed for light, by which Jesus means the kingdom of heaven. This is what a disciple does, what a Christ follower does, what a Christian does. I want to pursue the Lord. So this, this is a big decision because by the time you make it, you will be attached to it. And by the time you get attached to it, you will have a definite trajectory marked out for you. And by the time you start walking on whichever path you're walking on, your destination 
It's signed, sealed, delivered. Like, guys, you have to make a decision. Are you going to live for the world and the things of it, or are you going to live for God and the things of his kingdom? Because they're going to take you very, very different places. You have to make a decision. It's a big decision, and it's a mutually exclusive decision, which is a really fancy way of saying the saying that you have it both ways type decision. This is uh, you get one and you don't get the other type decision. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You've got to make a decision. There's a decision to be made here. You cannot have it both ways. You will, your ultimate loyalty will either lie with God or it will lie with the world. Like you can't store up treasures in heaven and treasures on earth. Those Your heart can't be equally split and divided amongst the two. You have a decision to make. One of those will be ultimate and primary for you, and the other one will be secondary. There's no way around it. There's a decision to be made. This word here in our text in verse 24, you see the word serve twice. The word serve is the same word that you would translate enslaved. It literally means to be owned by. This is why this is a mutually exclusive decision. Somebody owns you. Either the world and the things of the world own you or God owns you. The world cannot simultaneously own you if God owns you and God cannot simultaneously own you if the world owns you. Somebody has the rights to you. Somebody has your ultimate loyalty and your ultimate affection. And if we were to ask the question and push pretty deeply, hey, what are you living for? There is an ultimate answer to that question. And it can either be God or it can be the world. It's a mutually exclusive decision. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work like that. Somebody owns you. Who owns you? You see the word hate, and you say, Thomas, that seems awful strong. Despise, like this seems awful strong. If that seems awfully strong to you, just remember, right, the Bible will will typically use this word in a relative sense. So it might not mean you actively, like, hate God. It could mean you just love God a lot less than you love your stuff. And so if that's true of you, just understand You've already made your decision. Like the kingdom, you don't enter into the kingdom of heaven by not hating God. You enter into the kingdom of heaven by treasuring God. Who owns you? Somebody owns you. It's either God or it's the world. Thomas, you're making this really black and white. You've oversimplified this. There's no way Jesus thinks it's this open and shut, black and white, that I can either have the world or I can either have God. And one of them has my ultimate loyalty and the other one doesn't. Can you show me like a time where Jesus tells a story to make that exact point? Because if you show me a time where Jesus tells that exact story to make that exact point, maybe I'll believe you. Great. Let's go to chapter 19. It'll be a while before we make it back to chapter 19. So maybe I won't spoil your appetite for it. But you're already familiar with this story. You know it really well. I'm sure you're, you're, you're quite aware of it. This is our nameless, uh, faceless, rich young ruler. Here he is. Okay, so Matthew chapter 19, we'll begin in verse 16. Uh, Jesus says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Okay, now you can't tell me that a rich young ruler actively hates Jesus. Like, he doesn't have a problem with Jesus. He calls him teacher, rabbi. It's a term of, like, endearment. Like, he's, he's honoring him with this t- teacher, good teacher. 
He doesn't hate Jesus. He asks him a question. Like he, he, he recognizes Jesus might have some wisdom to speak into his life here. So Jesus, I don't have a problem with you. And Jesus, can you answer my question? Now, it's a pharisaical question. I'll give you that. What do I need to do to get eternal life? But it's a question nonetheless. And so Jesus responds and says, hey, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, Jesus? Jesus said, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus, I've done it all. Jesus, I, I am the most, like, take me home to meet mom and dad guy in the history of the world. I'm super upright. I pursued righteousness to the best of my ability. I've kept the law entirely. Now, he, he clearly hadn't heard Jesus' sermon in Matthew chapter 5. But still, like, morally upright guy. You would look at him and say, this must be a guy who's made a good decision. I bet he's on the right trajectory. I bet he's got one of those healthy eyes we were talking about. He, look at him. He's doing all the right things. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, uh, if you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Like, rich young ruler, how about you put your treasure in heaven? You put your treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possession. Didn't have a problem with Jesus. Didn't hate Jesus. But he's asked to make the choice between putting his treasure in heaven or keeping his treasure that's on earth. And he says... I think I'll keep my treasure. It's on earth. Brothers and sisters, he doesn't own any stuff. His stuff owns him. And because his stuff owns him, he cannot make Jesus his Lord. And because he will not make Jesus his Lord, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's made his choice. He's made his decision. He's tried to have it both ways. He's tried to play the game where I play lip service to Jesus. I respect Jesus. I think Jesus is a religious authority, but I really want my stuff. And because I really want my stuff, I end up getting owned by my stuff and I don't get Jesus. So if you think you can play that game, this is textbook, the guy trying to play the game, and Jesus says he loses. Because Jesus cannot be his Lord because his stuff is busy owning him. This is the main point of Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You gotta make a choice. There is no way to not make a choice. You have to make a decision, and you've gotta make a really big decision because this decision defines everything else in your life. I hope, we can go back to Matthew, I hope that in me working our way through this passage this morning, you don't think that I'm really concerned about your stuff. I'm not really concerned about your stuff. That's not the main point of this passage. It's true that if you like hoard a lot of material stuff, you, you could become a materialist, so it's, it's not nothing. Be aware of that. But this text is concerned about who owns you. And so I'm concerned about who owns you, not primarily about what you own. The rich young ruler had a lot of stuff, and guess what? It meant more to him than being obedient to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you gotta make... A choice. Who owns you? Who do you live for? Do you want to live for the world? Do you want to live for the Lord? Somebody's got to decide who owns you. Well, the rest of the chapter, we get a different flavor because Jesus goes on to unpack that. Jesus goes on to unpack, hey, this means something. Like if you're the type of, you're a disciple, a Christ follower, a Christian, and you've made this decision, I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to live unto God, okay, well, that radically impacts the way that we're going to look at the world. So verse 25, therefore, 
Ties directly to it. Therefore, so like since you've, since you've chosen to put your loyalty with God, you've thrown in your lot with him, you wanna live for him and not the things of this world. Since you've made that decision, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Do not be anxious about your life. What a command. What a command. Does anybody like being anxious? You might be anxious. You might spend time being anxious. But like legitimately being worried about something is kind of like the worst feeling ever. And so Jesus says, yeah, I know. So don't do it. Like don't be anxious. Don't be worried. What a freeing command. Like I don't have to be anxious. That's a great command. But keep in mind, it's just for the disciple. It's just for the Christ follower. It's just for the Christian. Because he goes on to say, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Like, I know that. I'm aware, I'm aware that my life is bigger than that. But brothers and sisters, here's the problem. If you're tempted to, or if you want to, or if you already have decided that you're gonna live for the world, just understand that type of stuff's ultimate to you. There's not more to life for you than food or clothing or material stuff like that because you've said, this is what I want. And if this is your ultimate desire, if your ultimate loyalty lies with the world, then there's not more to life than that. That's a really big deal. Like that's gonna consume you because you want that stuff more than you want anything else. But for the one who would be a disciple, for the one who will be a Christ father, for the one who will be a Christian, say, I want to live unto God. Like living unto the Lord means more to me than anything else. Well, guess what? It is very, very clear that life is more than what I'm going to eat or what I'm going to drink or what I'm going to wear. So don't be anxious. Dear friend, don't be anxious. Why wouldn't I be anxious? Like if I'm going to live for the Lord, will I get taken care of? What am I going to do about my stuff? Like how will I have enough? How will I have food? And Jesus says, Look at the birds. Consider the birds. Verse 26. Look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So brother, sister, if you want to live for the Lord, but you're like, huh, I really wonder if I should kind of try to sit on the fence and play this thing halfway because I probably need to take care of my material stuff. The Lord says, look at the birds. They don't, they don't, they don't even farm, like none of them. They don't have crops. They don't have barns. They don't have places to store stuff, but they get fed. And if the birds get fed, let's just think about you. So if you've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, do you not think that if he'll take care of the birds, he'll take care of you? Now, I'm not saying they don't work. Of course they work. You've seen birds. You see them out there pecking around on the ground looking for insects and worms and stuff like that. Hawks don't fly over fields because they need exercise. Like, no, they work. You should work. There's nothing wrong with work. But if you're saying, hey, I'm scared to aim my life at God because maybe I'll go without in the world, like Jesus is saying, no, you won't. Look at the birds. They don't do any of this farming stuff or any of this crop stuff or any of this storing stuff up for the future type stuff. They just live and God takes care of them. And so if you're committed to God, do you not think that the Lord will take care of you? You're of much more value than they. Verse 27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? So, so don't be anxious. And here's another reason not to be anxious. If the birds weren't a good enough reason for you not to be anxious, what does your anxiety do? Like, what can you change? Great, you're anxious about stuff. Can, can you add a moment to your life by being worried about stuff? 
Of course you can't. You, you might can take away some moments from your life by being worried and stressed and anxious about stuff, but you can't add any moments to your life by being anxious about stuff. So don't be anxious. Christian, don't be anxious. Verse 28, don't be anxious about your clothes either. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the wildflowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. You ever seen a field of wildflowers? I'm sure you have. Did you think they were pretty? I'm sure you did. But here's the thing about wildflowers. When you look at them, what do they do to look like that? Nothing. They didn't do anything. They didn't go out and strive and aim their lives at living for the world. No, they're flowers. They don't have a lot. Like, they're flowers. They didn't do anything. But here's, here's how you know that the Lord provides and the Lord protects and the Lord's sovereign over your clothing. Like, when you look at that field of wildflowers, you could turn and look at somebody like Solomon, who was the guy in Israel who had everything he ever wanted. And the Lord says, when we all agree, that field of wildflowers look better than him any day of the week. They're, the way they appear is nicer than his clothes. And he took everything he had and aimed it at his clothes. And the field still wins. The Lord knows how to clothe those who trust in him. Like, you don't have to be anxious. Look at the birds. Look at the field. Just think about how silly and pointless it is for you to worry because you can't add anything to your life anyways. When you think about this field, just look at the field and realize that, verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? So when you think about those wildflowers, just let's realize how temporary and transient they are. They're here today. They're pretty today. They've got life in them today. And, and like tomorrow, they're going to die. And when they die tomorrow, we're going to like gather them and put them as fire starter. We're going to throw them in the oven to use them to start our fires. And so if God's so concerned about how the flowers look that he would make them beautiful, do you not think he'll take care of you whom he's bought for himself with the blood of his son? Of course he will. You don't have to worry about if the Lord will provide for what you need to live according to his purpose. Like, if you're sold out to living for him, he's clearly got the capability to take care of you. He's taking care of the birds. He's taking care of the wildflowers. They look better than Solomon. And they have very little value. You have immense value. Of course he will take care of you. That phrase at the end of verse 30 is, is really, really helpful for us. Oh, you of little faith. Because it really gets to the point here. When we're talking about our hesitance to sell out and live for the Lord, like we're not, we're gonna step away from living for the world and we're gonna sell out and live to God, it really is a faith issue. Because if you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to live unto the Lord because you're worried about the things of this world, what you're doing is saying, I don't really know if God's good. And maybe he's good, but I don't really know that he's good to me. And the Bible's saying, no, like if you belong to him, you don't have to worry about that. Have a little bit of faith. I'm going to take you on another detour this morning. Romans chapter 8. I don't usually make you turn all over the place, but we've done it twice this morning. So there you go. I'm making up for lost time. Romans chapter 8, and we all know verse 28. We all love verse 28. Verse 28, so popular, it's popular for good reason. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according 
to his purpose. So that, that verse is really helpful for us. It tells us a lot of things. We know that for those who love God, or we'll translate it into Matthew 6 language, for those who are owned by God, like if God owns you and you love him, if you're one of those people, we can trust Christians, disciples, like we know that all things work together for us, for good, for those who are called, those who are owned by God, according to his purpose. So they're working for our good and they're working for his purpose. Those things have been aligned. That's what it means for you to be a Christian. You now want the glory of God and you can rest assured that God wants the glory of God. So you and God are on the same sheet of paper. He's given you a new heart. He's put his spirit within you. You want what the Lord wants. And so he's going to take care of you. All things are gonna work for your good according to his purpose. Hear that? His purpose. So that mean your purpose I'm not preaching like health, wealth, prosperity, sunshine, rainbows all the time. Like his purpose. He's going to be glorified, which if you're a Christian, is what you most want. If you would rather have something else than God be glorified through your life, you have the wrong master. But if you're a Christian, this is true of you. What I most want is for the Lord to be glorified in my life. And one of the ways that I'm glorifying God is through my salvation. Then we go to verse 29, which is about our salvation. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let, let's go back to that, that phrase right there. He's predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. They're, they're gonna be saved. They're gonna look more and more Christ-like. They're gonna live unto God in order that they might be the firstborn among, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's like a group of people who are owned by God. They're saved. They're set apart. They're called out. They've been justified. Their lives are living in accordance to God's purpose. This is gonna work for their good. Like the Lord's sovereign over it. And so guess what? We don't have to worry about whether the Lord is gonna give us what we need to live according to his purpose or not because of verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, it's really simple. Jesus did not die so God could hang you out to dry. Like if you're saying something like, the Lord sent Jesus to live and die and rise in my place to save me and he set his love on me and he sent his spirit to give me a new heart and to convict me of my sin and to convict me of righteousness and to show me the path I ought to follow. Like he's reconciled him, me to himself through Jesus. You don't have to turn around and worry if he's gonna give you what you need to be faithful. Like if he's, if he's crucified his son for you, I think he's pretty invested in this. It seems safe to say he's pretty interested in you having what you need to be faithful and live according to his purpose. So brothers and sisters, the point, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious. Back to Matthew. 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for? The Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Don't be anxious. Brothers and sisters, don't walk around primarily concerned with what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink or what we're going to wear because everybody else does that. 
You're supposed to be salt and light. You're supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be able to look at you disciples, you Christ followers, you Christians, and say, huh, they seem to have faith in the one who owns them to provide for them. The Gentiles do all these things. They want all these things. Their primary concern is all these things. But we know that our Heavenly Father knows that we need Him. So that frees us. It liberates us to let go of the world and living for the world and having all of our concern wrapped up in the world, in the right here, in the right now, in the material. And it lets us say, we want to live for God. Because we know that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And so we can fulfill verse 33. We can be a people who seek the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and trust in all these things, whatever we need is going to be added to us. Brothers and sisters, hey, who owns you? You might love the Lord and you might have stuff, but one of those is primary and one of those is secondary. Disciples, Christ followers, Christians are people who living unto the Lord is primary. We are seeking that. We're seeking him. We're after him. We're in pursuit of him. Therefore, verse 34, don't be anxious. Don't, be, don't worry. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There'll be plenty of time to worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. But guess what you don't have to worry about if your trust is in the Lord? You don't have to worry about if you're going to have what you need to be faithful tomorrow. You'll have it. It's not saying it'll be easy. It's not, I'm not telling you tomorrow's going to be fun. I'm not telling you tomorrow will be the best day you ever had. But... You can trust that you'll get up tomorrow and the Lord will provide a way for you to be faithful. Because that's kind of what he does. Because he's kind of invested in that. He sent his son to live and die and rise on your behalf so that you would not be condemned for your sin. But he's actually sent Jesus to take on your sin and shame in your place so that you can have life with him. He's not going to turn around and make it impossible for you to live for him tomorrow. He's not going to turn around and make it impossible for you to glorify him with your life tomorrow. He's not going to do that. So don't be anxious about tomorrow. Christians, disciples, Christ followers, we're not people characterized by this forward-facing fear where we're paralyzed about what's going to happen to us tomorrow because we think somehow we're going to lose our faith and we're not going to be able to be a faithful people. The Lord will provide a way for you to be faithful. That's what he does. Brothers and sisters, the, the challenge is that it's written to disciples. It's all do not fear, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't hang your head as you look forward to tomorrow. Like, that's for disciples. The challenge is, if, if you've come here this morning and you've made the decision or you're making the decision to live for this world, like, you should be really worried. Jesus has done nothing to abate that fear. He's actually tried to heighten that fear because this is going to take you a really bad place. The challenge is that if you choose to live for the world, you cannot detach yourself from the consequences of living for the world. If you choose to live for the world, guess what you're going to be driven by? The world. You're going to be controlled by the world. Your affections belong to the world. And when you are detached, you become attached to the world. And your affections and you're controlled by the world. Your trajectory is inevitably destruction. There's no way around it. This is a big decision, a massive decision, a costly decision. Your trajectory will determine where your destination is, and if you're going to live for the world, your destination is going to be judgment. And the, the logic behind that is really simple. Because you cannot be owned by God while you're being owned by this world. 
And the only folks who will come out of this thing alive with life will be those who are owned by God. So my friends, who owns you? Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you for making things so black and white. We thank you, Lord, that you're gracious enough to tell us that we have a decision to make. We're grateful that in many places in your word, you tell us how urgent it is. And so, Lord, I pray that in us right now, you produce a radical desire uh, to live for you, uh, a trust in you that would allow us to let go of clinging so tightly to the things of this world, that we wouldn't be a people who are tossed about by every time the wind blows a different direction in this world, but that we would be a people more and more conformed to Jesus who are willing to live our lives entirely unto you. You tell us that's what it means to be a Christian people. And so, Lord, I pray that we be faithful to our name and to our calling. Lord, if there are those here this morning who have made the decision to live for the world, I pray that you would give them the sober eyes to see that. You would help them to realize the trajectory that they are on, and you would warn them by the power of your Holy Spirit of the judgment uh, that is to come. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful witnesses for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to have a brief hymn of response. I'll be down front worshiping with you guys if there's anything you'd like to talk to me about or pray with me about.